0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com four keys. Use the number four, K E Y S. That's unmistakablecreativecom four keys. And download your free copy.
1: Well, let me go at it this way. What I ultimately ended up concluding is that this is my voice. So I actually no longer am willing to say that I have spasmodic dysphonia. That It implies that something unwanted from away came and took a piece of my voice. But ultimately, it ended up giving me uh, much more value and ability to grow than took away. And, And one day, a few years ago, I just started looking at it differently. And I said, you know, this is not a broken voice, it's just my voice.
4: Luxury quality
2: within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
2: Kevin, welcome to the unmistakable creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I found out about your work by way of your publicist. who sent me a copy of your book, uh, the seventh power, all of which we will get into, but, Um, Given your background, I want to start with what I feel is a very relevant question, and that is, what is one of the most important things that you learned from one or both of your parents that have influenced and shaped who you've become and what you've done with your life?
1: I would say one of the biggest things I've learned from my parents is that people are super important, to say it differently, that people are more important than things, and that really has permeated how I have tried to live my life and how I've tried to manage and lead our company. I'm the CEO of a lumber company uh, up in Maine, and we've got all kinds of inventory and equipment and machinery and rolling stock. But when I travel around the company, that's not really what interests me. What interests me is the people because it's our people that really define us. Anybody can by the equipment we have, our differentiator is our people. And to take that one step further, really, with within companies, to see employees uh, as human beings, you know, they're human beings that happen to have jobs. They're not workers or employees. And I think that paradigm of, of viewing everyone as a human being Uh, as simple as it sounds, is actually quite powerful.
2: Well, I I think not only is it powerful, it's quite rare in the world that we live in today where, uh, you know, companies in general are rewarded, particularly by Wall Street, for profit maximization, not taking care of people. Like, you know, if you talk to a board of directors or investor, they're not going to say, oh, yeah, we're taking great care of our people, but the bottom line sucks. Um, And that's sort of how, how do you how do you wrestle with that paradox? How do those two things coexist?
1: Yeah, I'm so glad that came up. It's a it's a priority topic of mine. I uh, really believe that one of the key things that companies have to do in the 21st century is go back to square one and revisit their mission, their very purpose for existing. We did this. Uh, A while back, and and we totally reset our mission, our primary mission at Hickcock Lumber today uh, is to make sure that the people who work at the company are having a meaningful and valuable experience. I talk about that as being an employee-centric company. So we want work to be more than just an economic exercise for the people Who do it, the people who work, as we all know, spend decades and exert great energy to work. And we want that to be a meaningful experience for them. Now, our corporate profit performance is, of course, uh, important. It matters, but I've really come to think of that as the outcome of a higher calling. It's not the mission in and of itself. It's one of the important byproducts or outcomes of running an employee-centric company that puts the experience of the people first. And what I've found is when you put the experience of the people first, they will reciprocate that love and care back on the company and take even better care of it than they would have otherwise.
2: Yeah, So I I want to come back to this because uh, I know you talked extensively about this in the book, Uh, but there's some other parts of this that I want to talk about when it comes to your personal story. I know for a fact that this is a family run business. It's been around for six, your sixth generation, if I remember correctly. And that raised numerous questions for me. Um, first off, was there an expectation that this is what you would do with your life, particularly because it's a family-run business? Is the expectation that if somebody within the family has to take this over?
1: Yeah, I've reflected on that a, a lot. It's such a great question. So, yes, as you say, our company is actually one of the oldest in America. We trace our roots back to 1848, so before the first cannonball was fired in the civil war company was in business up here at maine and it's been connected to um the same family my family uninterrupted through that whole period and and i came to work for the company back in 1991 when i was about 25 when my dad uh, was diagnosed with cancer he'd been running the company and he ended up dying a few years later, uh, growing up, I had never thought about coming to work for the family business. I laugh about this at hindsight. It was not any part of my plan. I was uh, teaching and coaching. but uh, I did feel kind of at that critical moment when my dad got sick, some uh, pressure to join the business and it's turned out to be a great thing. Uh, for me, uh, but there wasn't any kind of formal plan that got me here into the seat I have today. And I would say going forward, we have two, my wife and I have two adult daughters who are both now in their 20s. And we've really tried to adopt a corporate model now where everybody leads all the employees in the company. And I really want our two daughters to follow their own voices, whether that means they're just uh, supportive uh, and committed owners who help the company that way, or they ever end up working for the company, time will tell. But I would never, ever uh, recruit a family member into the family business. That's got to be something that uh, is really Inspiring to the individual that that wants to do it.
2: Yeah. Well, I think I'm so glad you brought that up because I'm thinking about succession and a couple of things come up. Uh, One, you know, if you have siblings, how how are the choices made? I mean, you mentioned, yeah, like the person who is chosen as inspired. Now, let's say that person is inspired, but not the ideal person to do it. You know, how does that choice get made? Uh, My roommate actually had a really interesting question about this. He said, you know, one of the things he had seen in family businesses is that the second generation does really well because they saw it being built. But the next generation almost comes in with this sense of entitlement because this is just the way it's always been. Like there's been this family wealth. Um, How do you deal or or how do you avoid a sense of entitlement when it's been passed on from generation to generation? And how do you preserve the integrity of what was originally built right from the get-go? Uh, particularly when it was so long ago?
1: Yeah. Wow. Those are, uh, that's one sharp roommate you have. Those are great questions. (laughs) Thank you for all of that. Uh, So, you know, I think it takes a number of things. It takes a little bit of luck, first of all, along the way. There are a lot of reasons why companies don't go six generations like ours has, and I think you've always got to appreciate, you know, good fortune and the thousands of people, employees, customers and community members that have helped along the way across the uh, generations. But I think really at the end of the day, it all comes down to a set of core values and if those values are present within the family and the business, it, it's going to help guide the company in the right direction. So, for example, one of our core values really could be summarized in the word uh, stewardship, where the company uh, it is its own entity. It's not there. Uh, solely for the pleasure or the benefit of the owners it makes a much bigger broader uh, contribution to society and it has a life of its own and the owners to a degree are really there to do the best they can to serve it and it's The the belief in the long run that if you put the company before yourself, if you put the people in the company before yourself, that, you know, ultimately that will pay back to you. But the other thing I'd like to say about this is that um, every single generation of a company, multi-generational company, is going to have to be uh, entrepreneurial In order for that company to survive because the world just changes so dramatically across any generation that what made sense uh, at the beginning of a generation in terms of how business was done is going to have been disrupted dozens of times by the end of that generation. So something I've always kind of right to speak to is certainly the founder of anything is an entrepreneur but anyone who keeps an institution going across generations is also an entrepreneur. You could look at uh, American government this way and no one would say that only George Washington was a presidential entrepreneur. you know every generation it takes, leaders uh, who don't take the institution for granted, who know it's always vulnerable, and who are working hard to reinvent the business uh, so that it is relevant in the future, not just in the past.
2: Yeah. So one thing I wondered is, you know, if I were an employee and, you know, I was looking at, at myself as, oh, I'm somebody here who's in a sixth generation family business, how do you actually avoid the perception of nepotism for people who are not members of your family who work for your company? Yeah, that's a great question, too. In, uh, in our case, it's easy because i'm the only member of the family that works in the company
1: a <laughs> uh, so it would be just me that has to overcome the turtles we have 530 uh, people who are part of our team and i'm the only member of the family that um that works here, but but in many family businesses, to your point, there are multiple family members that may work at the company. And again, I think it all comes back to uh, culture. That if the culture is every uh, a family member as an employee must earn his or her. You know, spot and path and growth and opportunities. Then, then it's probably gonna work out just fine. And if it's the opposite, where people really feel entitled, then you're uh, or don't have to really um, prove themselves. Then you're you're probably ultimately gonna have issues in the long run. But this is why family businesses are complex entities, it's super hard to just be successful in business. And it's super hard to or takes work to have a harmonious, supportive family where every individual is really free to speak and live with their own voice. And then to try to put the two together uh, adds another whole layer of complexity. So it's not easy
4: That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, it, I mean, the reason that that came up for me was, uh, you know, there's been so much about the Murdoch's as of, of, you know, Rupert Murdoch getting sick and getting old. And of course, we're talking billions of dollars and how much conflict this is all caused, uh, you know, and you're free to, to not answer this. But I wonder, have you had conflict in your family over the fact that you've had this business, you know, for generations? Have there been people like, let's let it all go and cash out? Or has there been anything along those lines that's caused
1: conflict with your family members? Uh, so. That's That's another great question. And and the answer, of course, is yes, but I look back on it all actually fondly and lovingly. Like, if you ask anybody, separate the business for a second, and ask anybody if there's ever been conflict within their family (laughs) – and the answer is going to be yes. So conflict is part of the dynamic of family. But if that conflict is rooted in, um, you know, care and love and, and people who mean well, then really it's, it is it is. Ultimately, part of how family grows and evolves and learns to respect everyone. <laughs> so we had, uh, you know, our share like any other family. But when I look back on it, it's actually all made us individually and collectively stronger. You know, you wouldn't cut flicks a funny word because on the surface you want to avoid it, but across an entire lifetime. A life would really be empty or hollow or out- f- or unfulfilled without regular doses of it. It's kind of a um, an experience that's typically necessary for growth and change and progress. so I think about our conflict periods in a in a really healthy way upon reflection, not to say that there
2: aren't moments where it's difficult. Yeah. So for the, the context of our listeners uh, who haven't read your book, let's start with uh, talking about what happened to your voice, because otherwise they might think we're having audio problems.
1: <laughs> yeah, so uh, right. Um, so back in 2010, at the peak of the national housing and mortgage market collapse, I began to have trouble uh, speaking. I Something I've never... Uh, thought about, always taken for granted, and done quite a bit of it. Suddenly, it got hard. And at first, I thought I maybe just had a cold, but it persisted and got worse. And uh, it turned out I've acquired a rare neurological voice disorder called spasmodic dysphonia. There are perhaps 25,000 people in North America that have not uh, and it has no known, known cause and no known cure but uh, it really impacted my entire life including how I thought about leadership because suddenly back then I had to I, my talking was a lot more limited than it is right now and I had to suddenly figure out how to lead without being able to use my voice very often and that ended up Really changing uh, how I thought about my role as a leader and uh, leadership broadly. The this quick story I tell as an example is uh, with hard talk. You develop strategies for doing less of it. And mine at the time was to answer a question with a question, thereby putting. conversation right back on the other person so someone would come up to me at work because i was the ceo or the boss or one of the leaders with a question or a problem and i would listen and i started saying simply well that is a good question what do you think we should do about it and originally i was doing this just to protect my wounded voice but after Months and months and dozens and dozens of exchanges like this, what um, I observed really intrigued me. And in summary, it was this. People already knew what to do. They didn't actually turn out need, uh, after all, a CEO-centric or top-down-centric directive or solution to the vast majority of challenges that they faced in the course of a day, they knew what to do. All they really needed was some confidence and support and a safe culture to trust their voice, to feel empowered, and to uh, lead themselves, which is when I really started thinking about began thinking about my voice condition as actually a bit of a gift, an opportunity to lead differently in a way that dispersed power instead of collected it, and in a way that strengthened the voices of others.
2: Mm, Wow. So before we get into the business side of this, um, what I really wonder is how has having this voice disorder impacted your relationship with members of your family, like your wife and your daughters? Like what has changed about your relationship with them as a byproduct of this? Yeah, it's been in the long run, all of my relationships. Um,
1: I really became much better at listening much better at focusing on others, much better at sharing a conversation, sharing the room. And so it really, uh, to me, has been a bit empowering uh, for everyone that I'm connected to because uh, I just don't use my voice to dominate any kind of setting now whether it's a family
2: setting or a a corporate one yeah so one thing i wonder is there are people whose voices are perfectly fine who wouldn't have the courage to do something as audacious as show up on a podcast where literally your ability to communicate with my listeners depends on their voice what would you say to them
1: yeah i would say Uh, Well, let me go at it this way. What I ultimately ended up concluding is that this is my voice. So I actually no longer am willing to say that I have spasmodic dysphonia. That approach implies that something unwanted from away came and took a piece of my voice but ultimately, it ended up giving me uh, much more value and ability to grow than it took away. And, and one day, a few years ago, I just started looking at it differently. And I said, you know, this is not a broken voice. It's just my voice. And every single uh, person on earth, ultimately, has a unique never to be repeated voice that we're all here on earth just trying to know and love and connect with and own that essence of who we are. And my um the sound of my voice might be more pronounced in a unique way than others, but it's really just exemplary of the human experience. Voices are unique by design. And when I started Viewing the world that way, it made everything so much simpler. I immediately got beyond listening to people from the perspective of evaluating whether I thought they were right or wrong, and that's one of the actual core lessons I explore in my book: is the idea that listening uh, should be for understanding, not judgment. And the minute you make that paradigm shift the landscape of interacting with others changes so what i would say to anyone who have a a voice limitation literally like i do or just have anxiety about owning their own views and perspectives is that um your voice is supposed to be unique. it's not supposed to be like anyone else's and exactly how it sounds and exactly how you see it is just right for you
2: and bring it forth and share it and own it and love it. Hmm, I love that. So let's get into the seventh power. Uh, One of the things you say at the very beginning of the book is that organizations are most effective when the opportunity and responsibility for leading is shared broadly and embraced by all. Power, it turns out, is meant to be dispersed and you talk about this distinction between power being dispersed and collected and that is such an anomaly i think for the way that many of us perceive large corporations or companies we don't see power as dispersed or as collect you know as dispersed we see it as collected i can tell you most from my own experience i never felt like i had any power when i was in the corporate world why i chose not to ever go back um yeah. So, how do we, how, you know, as a society do we move to this idea of power being dispersed? Because this isn't just a corporate problem. This is also a government problem. Like, you know, I mean, I watch the news every day and I don't feel that I have a government that acts in the interest of the citizens. I don't feel like the citizens don't have any power to shape what actually happens.
1: You, you're on to such an important talk that I believe what you just talked about is the single most important question of the 21st century for humanity, not, not to put too much on um, the subject, but I really do. And I've thought a lot about it and I wrote a lot about it in my book and, and how I feel is this, I believe that for centuries humans have been indoctrinated into the art of following that that we've lived in an empire-centric society where the church, the state, corporation was the entity that we all were uh, trained to serve and put before ourselves. And we were taught to look elsewhere for leadership and power and direction. And this is really right at the essence of what inspires me. In this way, we as individuals have lost our voice or seeded a piece of our own power in a way that's not, that's either necessary or productive. But I go on to. to talk about in the book, and I believe that this is a transformation that's upon us. There's a reason today that engagement at work is so low, it hovers around 33%, or confidence in government is so low. And that reason is just what you're discussing that, that in the Aquarian age, individuals around the globe are awaken- are awakening to their own sacred power as an individual human being. But our organizations have been slow to adjust, which is really the essence of the transformation I'm advocating for. The old model was the employees existed to serve the company. The new model is the company exists to serve the employees. And while this will, in fact, improve the performance of the company, that becomes, as we mentioned, uh, an outcome. And it all comes back, finally, to how the leaders think about their roles of leadership. This is really about breaking down bureaucracy, breaking down power to the center, and really becoming... um About distributing and dispersing that power and helping everybody see themselves as a leader and feeling safe to take the risks that are required for everyone to lead. Followership's got one big advantage, which is when things go wrong, it's never your fault because you were following. And Mm so when leadership changes, Or leadership to change, I guess I would say. Followership has got to change as well. So that's why this topic, to your point, is actually a topic for everybody. Every single uh, human on earth, I believe, needs to uh, contemplate, be conscious about their own power, their own ability to lead, their own ability to make choices. And the ways in which we've been indoctrinated into followership. So we've got to be really thoughtful about how we break that down. And the first step, I think, is just becoming aware of it. hmm Yeah.
2: So it's funny you say that because in one way, I think that the current structure of society, you know, rewards power and it incentivizes people to keep this current power structure in place. And I was, I was thinking about this in context of uh, this documentary my roommates and I were watching last night. It's called Where to Invade Next by Michael Moore. Um, you know, regardless of what you think of Michael Moore, like what was interesting is he goes around to different countries and he looks at various social policies, everything ranging from education to prison reform, to healthcare. But the one that struck me in particular as somebody who has a lot of student loan debt was, you know, how he looked at education and he went to different countries and he said that, you know, he showed basically what happened in Slovenia where they had university is always free. He said the moment that government got involved and tried to put in a tuition hike or even think about charging students there took to the streets and that was it. Like there was no tuition hike. And he said in the United States, every time there's a tuition hike, here's what happens. And he showed a clip of students basically sitting on an idyllic campus. Yet people, if literally every college student took to the streets and said, you know what, we're not coming until you guys basically make this free, then it would actually happen. Why hasn't it? Like, what is it about people here that doesn't cause them to take to the streets, even though they are absolutely livid about this situation.
1: Right. That is a great uh, example. And and this topic is uh, so important about people realizing that, that you hold power. The most important person who will determine the future of your life is you. And it really requires so your question of why it hasn't happened. I think it's been because we have been indoctrinated into uh the the view of looking externally for solutions, and I think that the transformation comes when we start to look inward. It's that uh, iconic <laughs> thought from from Gandhi about becoming the change we wish to see in the world. And to your point about protest, not participating in actions that we don't believe in or that don't serve us. The other uh, component of this, I think at its essence, is uh hidden, and, and it, to me is this, it's understanding our connectivity to nature. So I have a little segment of my book where I'm, I am just have been doing some learning and some work on the Navajo reservation in northern Arizona, and that night I was walking alone in the desert at sunset when f- five uh, transformational words hit me And they simply were this, in nature, power is dispersed. And I stopped in my tracks and looked around and actually then began posing a series of questions out loud by myself to the desert. I said, "Uh, where's the capital of this desert? Where is its headquarters? Where is the CEO? Where are the managers? Where are the supervisors? Where is the corporate governance center? And the answer to every question was self-evident, of course. The power of nature is dispersed. It lives in every part and piece of the landscape. And here's the key point. Humans, this is what we've forgotten, I believe, or are not focused on enough. Humans are a part of nature, not above it. And as such, ultimately aspire to organize in the same way, that to the extent we would say that nature is uh, sacred, that there's a sacred energy to the universe. We are manifestations of that. That energy lives within us, and it's learning to tap back in the power of the individual human spirit that really inspires me. And that's the essence of what the seventh power, which is a Sioux or Lakota phrase uh, represents. Hmm.
2: So, you know, it's funny. I remember very distinctly the parts on nature in the book, because they really struck me. And, you know, I've been writing a lot lately about this idea of interdependency and how Nature is this very interdependent system in which no aspect of nature optimizes for self-interest. So, for example, you need, you know, the clouds to give us rain so that the plants get water so that we basically get oxygen. Now, if the sun decided, you know what, I'm just going to focus on myself to hell with the clouds and to hell with, you know, the atmosphere, that would cause lots of problems. And yet human beings tend to optimize for self-interest. And part of that is good because obviously if we didn't have some level of self-interest, we wouldn't accomplish things. There wouldn't be drive. We wouldn't make progress. But I think that we've taken it so far that we've ended up in a situation where people are able to make decisions in which they don't have to deal with the consequences of their actions. Nassim Taleb writes about this in Skin in the Game, and he calls it the, the so I think it was, he called the Robert Rubin problem, which is actually a really good way of looking at it. Like, if you think about it, you know, people who work at the Treasury Department make economic policy that has no impact on their lives whatsoever. You know, so for example, when somebody like Steve Mnuchin says, you know what, I'm going to hand out $1,200 to every American, and this is going to solve their problems. It's like, well, yeah, dude, you have $300 million dollars to basically sit around with, so go to hell. Like your problem, your your action, you have no skin in this game, as far as I'm concerned. So you're making policy that actually has no impact on your life, and that to me is is a huge problem. So how do you deal with that? I mean, we, I mean, based on what you've just said, because again, human beings optimize for self-interest.
1: Right. That's so well said. So many great things there to contemplate uh, on. Component of that of what you said that I think about a lot is we really are entering an age of localism where what really needs to happen is that the capitals, the center, the Steve Mnuchin example, need to start thinking about not what's the biggest role we can play. But what is the smallest role we can play that's tactical and supporting and defers as much decision-making as possible to local individuals, local communities? And I think you see this when you think about humanity's biggest challenges. Let's take uh, COVID-19 as an example, and if someone asked, who has to be a leader for humanity to defeat COVID-19? The answer, of course, is everybody because that virus travels one individual at a time. It, to me, it is such a hallmark of uh, the age in which we're living, with, with whether it's uh, global warming or environmental Stewardship or mitigation of a virus, success requires everybody, but we're still operating in models where small groups of people in monolithic capitals, whether it's a corporate headquarters or a government one, are overreaching. They're trying to do too much, and it's probably well-intentioned, but it can't work. You know, you think about this. Why is why is government so ineffective in so many ways? It's not because there aren't good people in government. Government's filled with good people. It's just because that approach doesn't work anymore. The planet is too humanity is too agile and dynamic to centrally plan it.
2: Mm-hmm. So how then do you get this shift? Because I know one of the things you talked about when it came to overreaching is you said restraint is the opposite of overreaching. It's having the power but not using it. Restraint is not force. It's, it's a new path to building consensus, alignment, and engagement. Uh, and that really struck me because of the fact that you know, we don't actually encourage consensus, alignment, and engagement. Instead, what we encourage as a society is conformity. Um, in fact, you know, you're basically an outcast the moment you're a nonconformist, even though it takes nonconformity for huge change to uh, take place. So how do we wrestle with this paradox? And then how do you bring about this sort of evolution in consciousness at a greater level? Because, you know, it's one thing for you to write a book about it, and it's one thing for you and I to have a conversation about it. But unless this conversation literally reaches 100 million people, then, you know, we're still in a lot of ways stuck where we're at.
1: Right. I think there are three levels of transformation that are required. The first and most important is personal. We all got to stop, pause, look inward, and reevaluate some of our core subjects. Really become awake, alert, and alive. So I almost wish for a short time, everyone on Earth could acquire spasmodic dysphonia because that's what kicked it off for me. It forced me to stop, sit, listen, and think, and I began uh, to change. Then the second phase, uh, which I spent the decade working on, is, okay, could this type of uh, power shift, actually be pulled through an, an organization and I had the opportunity here at our company to work on that. So across 14 sites of 150 people, uh, we have implemented this power dispersal approach our, and the results have been dramatic. Our engagement scores are run close to 90%. So about 9 out of 10 people will describe their experience of company as being meaningful to them, highly meaningful, and the performance of the company uh, through that decade went through the roof. So I see. I haven't just thought about it and written about it. I've actually spent a decade doing it, and now what I'm really uh, hoping to do is to try to spread some, some of the um, opportunities of power dispersal and shared leadership more broadly. Because I think unless we do, it's going to be very difficult for organizations to increase their effectiveness and for humanity to achieve its potential. But at the end of the day, long story short, we've all got to walk the talk first on an individual level, and then try to apply this change to the community right around us, the people you see and touch every day, and then, hopefully, that can start to create some critical mass of, of motion that can create larger-scale change. mm mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So one of the the other things that I wonder, you know, I think part of what intrigued me about your story, like before I got into the book, now that you would, I've talked, this is like a much deeper conversation than I imagined it was going to be. But, um, you know, I think I grew up in this sort of family of academics and, you know, sort of knowledge workers. And it was pretty clear that we were not going to be blue collar people and have blue collar jobs like this just was the expectation that we would never do anything like that. But I know that, you know, people who work in your industry, you know, many of them do come from blue collar backgrounds. And I think that part of what I am always trying to do with the people that I talk to is to basically gain an understanding of, you know, life and and sort of social situations that I personally don't have any experience with. Um, What do you think that people in my position should know about people in those kinds of positions? Like, what do you think I'm missing?
1: Uh, Well, I think you're probably not missing very much by virtue of your question, because I think half the at or more is to be curious about that question or to have even contemplated it so i love 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 the question and then i would say beyond that the answer to me is uh that i think some in the white collar world might be blown away surprised at how smart and talented and capable uh, mentally. Intellectually and spiritually, blue-collar working people are. One of the stereotypes I've really tried to go after is the the fear that many people who work in a blue-collar job feel that they're really only valued for their physical labor, their physical capabilities. When really, like every other human, uh, their true genius is, is their mental, spiritual, emotional, intellectual capabilities. And what I have seen time and time again is essentially every single person in this company is exceptionally capable of leading and handling complex uh, challenges and doing so with grace and compassion and uh and that leadership is really something that's cut out for everyone
2: yeah so yeah this makes me wonder uh you know Byron rates and we we're talking about sort of how economic changes occurred over the last 20 years and one of the big things that came about from sort of the amount of wealth that was created in technology that came out of Silicon Valley and innovation is pretty much a, a sort of disappearance of the middle class. But you're a CEO of a lumber company who has actually managed to sustain, you know, a middle class lifestyle for people. What I mean, what is your view on the fact that there? I mean, we we can't argue with the fact that there is a disappearing middle class in the United States that is largely the result of automation um technology and innovation so good things are coming from it but a very bad thing is coming from it too because i know this from having talked to andrew yang who's a presidential candidate and he said you know you go around to the middle of the country um and you know particularly for those of us who live on the coasts or live in places like i do where it's you know tech startup founders and people who are pretty well off we don't actually see the reality of what's happening um how, what is this, I mean, you're, like I said, as a CEO of a lumber company, somebody who's managed to continually provide a middle-class lifestyle for multiple generations for people, um, how are we going to make this transition economically?
1: Yeah, I am, prob- I am certainly uh, biased about that in a, in a positive way design every day surrounded by Uh, people working at our company or say contractors and builders who are buying from our company who definitely consider themselves to be middle class Americans. And so I see them everywhere (laughs) and I see their spirit uh, alive and well and I see them Progressing and I see them growing and I see them creating opportunities for their children and things like that. Now, the, the thing I've thought a lot about though, and I think it's important to talk about, uh, is that journey uh, was never easy. I think somehow, you know, we've acquired this notion that it used to be easier. And I don't know that that's true historically. If you look back to uh, immigrants uh, leaving the boat at Ellis Island a hundred and whatever years ago, was it really easier then? I spent a lot of time uh, in Native American communities. If you back up a hundred years ago and visited America's reservations with it really have been easier for Native people. So it is hard today, but I think that it has always uh, been hard. And in a, in a way that's a bit difficult I think, to talk about in the right loving spirit, I think a big part of the human experience is supposed to be a challenge. And those challenges come to different people in different ways. And it doesn't mitigate the social obligation to keep trying to improve opportunity and and advance equality uh, and make America a more equitable place. But I don't think that ever has been or will be easy. And I think what I'd say in particular about that is that the the people that would consider themselves middle class or blue collar that I know I don't think they're looking for it to be easy i i don't i I think there's a bit of a miscalculation about that community i mean I see people that are that are happy and that are positive and that are proud and that are making progress and that um and that are participating, you know, just doing, doing the best they can with their lives and and doing a great job in so many ways. I see the story, um, I I guess, is more uplifting and filled with opportunity than I do the opposite. Now one could certainly listen to me say, right. And say, well, you know, you're a you're a white fifty four year old CEO of a family business, so that's super easy for you to say, and I I get that, but um, that is what I see working in in the lumber industry in Maine.
2: Wow. Uh, well, this has been absolutely fantastic, and uh, just. Thought-provoking and riveting and eye-opening. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews of The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: I think it's authenticity. I think it's uh, it's knowing that voices are unique by design and that your voice is not supposed to be uh, a manifestation of anything but you. I think it's getting comfortable with that, that I am, I am sacred, that I am the seventh power.
2: Hmm. Amazing. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners. Mm -hmm. This has been really just fantastic. Uh, Where can people find out more about you, your work and everything else that you're up to?
1: Sure. Let me, let me first say though, thank you so much for having me. And I think that you are really on a mission with, with this show and the subject of unmistakably creative that can play a transformative role in helping humanity uh, move in an optimal way. So, uh, cheers to you and thank you for what you're doing. Then uh, for people that want to follow up with me, my uh, website is www.kevindhancock.com. D is in David. And on that site, you can find uh, both my books, including The Seventh Hour, and more information about the subjects we're discussing. And then you can also uh, reach out and contact me directly. And I always make time to uh, follow up with people that uh, reach out to me.
2: Awesome. Uh, Well, for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming?